This is Bob Zarnick from Chicago, and this WBEZ podcast is made possible with the support of listeners like me. Send WBEZ some love by making a donation online at WBEZ.org. Thanks. Thank you very much, Bob. I'm Jason Mark, producer-director here at WBEZ. Welcome to it, the latest edition of the Best of BEZ Talk. This week I've lined up an interesting conversation from Worldview. Here's a little background. After World War II, the UN formed UNESCO as a way of implementing diplomacy through culture, sort of in the same way the Marshall Plan created diplomacy through economics. The mission of UNESCO is to, this is their words, help foster a sense of peace and unity in the minds of men. And the mission of UNESCO's World Heritage Program is to identify and preserve different sites around the globe that have significance and importance not only for the local population, but for all mankind, as they say. Now, the first site was designated in Egypt in the early 70s, and currently there are almost a thousand such sites around the world. But while there are benefits to being named a World Heritage Site, the attention can also bring a ton of tourists to places that might not be able to handle the crowds, maybe thieves looking to rip off artifacts and rip off tourists. In other words, the very thing that was designed to preserve a site has the potential for ruining it. It's a very delicate balance. Michael DeGiovane is an anthropologist at the University of Wisconsin. He's also a lecturer at the School of the Art Institute here in Chicago, and he wrote the book The Heritage Scape, UNESCO, World Heritage and Tourism. So if anybody knows anything about this stuff, this is the guy. Let's pick things up where DeGiovane explains how a World Heritage Site is chosen. It's kind of a misconception or a popular misconception that UNESCO kind of unilaterally comes in and says, we want this site, you know, and let's put it on a list. Actually, it's a very long and complicated and costly process that starts actually with the nation state or the state party. Once they're signatories to the uh, World Heritage Convention, which also means that they have to pay, you know, a, an annual, you know, membership fee to the World Heritage Fund, um, they get to offer up, and that's another term that they use, offer up very, you know, uh, diplomatically, uh, their site, uh, which is of local import to the world. Um, but then they have to go through a very long process to document and provide a nomination file, uh, which inclu- includes all kinds of scientific uh, information, maps and historical documents and things like that. Then you have three different advisory bodies uh, that are UNESCO-affiliated, uh, one that deals with cultural heritage, which is ICOMOS, uh, another that deals with uh, conservation, natural conservation, and then a third one that has is a technical historic preservation um, NGO. And they come in uh, and actually do a technical evaluation of whether or not these sites kind of fit those criteria. And all the criteria are uh, talk about being examples of some sort of human interaction or, or major milestone in, in, in human culture. So it can take technically years to get a yeah. designation, many years, yeah. and they have to also at times present plans about what to do about tourism if, Ab- if absolutely. it comes to that. Yeah, and another component, you're right, in the, in the nomination file is a management plan, and it's not going to be nominated without a really uh, well-thought-out and well-researched management plan about how to deal with development and especially tourism. 
because right. some of these sites, once they get designation, have seen skyrocketing tourism. And I guess Angkor Wat in Cambodia sure. is like the poster child of this. Sure, kind of sure. One of definitely one of them. Certainly, in my book, uh, the Heritage Escape, I, I use Angkor as a. I did research there, and, and I, I use it as a case study. But yeah, every year I would I would just listen to the tour guides talk about, oh, we're having one million this year, we're having two million this year, and now we're up to over three million. Uh, in Cambodia. And, you know, it's done a lot, not only to increase tourism, but it's changed the face of Cambodia. The first time I went to Cambodia in 2001, uh, you know, people were saying, Khmer Rouge, Khmer Rouge, that's what, what's, you're going to be killed there or something like that. But then by the time, you know, now, I just took uh, my parents there actually last year and uh, nobody, I mean, people think of the Khmer Rouge, but they're also thinking of Angkor. They're thinking of the great Khmer civilization. And Angkor Wat is uh, this temple um, uh, monument sure. thing that is, um, that nobody went to. I mean, there was not a lot of tourists going to this place. Right. And now you've got millions. Yeah, right. I mean, Angkor is one of, Angkor Wat itself, the temple, which is only one of many, many temples within the Angkor Archaeological Park, which is a vast complex of the capital of the Khmer Empire. It's, you can see it from space. That's how immense it is and, and how impressive it is. And it is one of my favorite sites. Um, but yeah, nobody went there. It was off limits. There were mines all around uh, during the post-Khmer Rouge, uh, you know, UN occupation of, of, of the country. But they've cleaned it all out, and, and um, certainly now millions come. So UNESCO, they don't have any money to help these people with what is going to befall them, really, in tourism or right. preservation or the, the herds of people who might come to these sites. Uh, but they can uh, kind of cajole or help uh, suggest paths forward for these sites? Sure. Well, one of the things that, I, that, I, that I've talked about a lot in, in my book, especially, uh, is the fact that, you know, people often think that, you know, you get this designation, you get a check, you know, you get some money. But actually, the World Heritage Fund is very small. But what the money does go to, uh, if you apply for it and, and you're successful, is to uh, have kind of this uh, technical assistance, which is training local site managers uh, and, and, and preservation and management, and also promotion to actually, you know, raise awareness of the site in the international community and kind of promote it for touristic, usually for touristic purposes. But you don't get, you know, any kind of money for or support necessarily. I mean, there's a little bit, but comparatively nothing for preservation directly. And also, you know, tourism, it's, it's hit or miss. Uh, Cambodia certainly has been the poster child, as you said, but it's certainly very rare in terms of the 962 sites. There are many sites that are in places that are kind of inaccessible to tourists. Uh, uh, Aleppo, for example, we were talking about, is a World Heritage Site since 1986. Obviously, no one can go there right now. Um, but also, tourism itself doesn't necessarily promote – doesn't necessarily uh, – there's not a one-to-one – kind of basis with, with the amount of tourists that you get and the amount of economic development or, or money that stays in the country. Tourism is a notoriously uh, vertical, integrative um, kind of an industry where, you know, you bring in an outside investor, an outside hotel, uh, then they start providing their own restaurant, their own transportation, their own guides, and soon there's really nothing for the actual people uh, around. Uh, and so the management plan has to be really strategic in how to kind of avoid those, those, those kinds of issues to keep you know, some of the tourist dollars uh, in there. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald speaking with Michael DiGiovine, and he is the author of Heritage Scape, UNESCO World Heritage and Tourism. We're talking about uh, UNESCO World Heritage uh, status. 962 places have it. Um, the United States doesn't have a whole lot of UNESCO no. World Heritage Sites. Um, why is that? 
personally, I think it reflects a very pervasive European, you know, understanding of uh, America as having no culture or being very young country. Uh, and, and, and of course, um, you know, in the very beginning, since 1972, the, the, the sites that were constantly being designated were what I call like these Mona Lisa of, of, of heritage sites, you know, the kinds of the Stonehenge, like you said, or, or um, pick a place in Italy, you know, or something like that, where it's very, very well known. And it's in our kind of collective psyche of, as being, you know, an important uh, place uh, in our history, often Christian, Catholic kind of cathedrals and things like that. But in 1994, they really kind of changed. They had this global strategy for creating a more uh, representative and balanced uh, incredible world heritage list uh, where they specifically wanted to push the envelope on what the criteria can be applied to. So now you have things, uh, you know, to, to basically bring in more countries that don't have the Western, you know, Christian, big monumental kinds of, of, of architecture or sites. And um, and it's worked. You know, now you have coal mines, you have volcanic islands, you have modern places that were just recently built. Uh, and I'm sure that that the United States, if they are supportive of UNESCO um, can, and, and, and provide, you know, nomination files, we can also, you know, get a couple more. The United States has been reluctant at times to provide nomination files. They went through a controversy with Yellowstone sure. years ago. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They, they in different different political uh, regimes, let's say, uh, you know, have different uh, different outlook or different stances towards um, towards UNESCO. But more than that, and this this is not just for America, but for many countries, you know, you have to understand that you're giving up a part of your autonomy with these sites, even though for all intents and purposes, you still own the site and manage the site, you know, you're still um, basically for, for no, no actual economic or political gain, you're really uh, uh, imposing stricter regulations on how to develop the site, how to use it yourself. Um, and, and so, you know, different countries are reluctant uh, and different local areas are reluctant. So in India, for example, India wants, like China, they want to get more sites because they want to look like they're not look like, but they want to be counted among those mega countries in the world, such as Italy and America and, you know, those big, the big countries, the big players and, and to have more sites makes them seem more valuable. Um, but local people who are using these sites, and live in the sites and, and, and use them daily are often pushing back and saying, we don't want you to, you know, make it a World Heritage Site and you're going to kick us out or you're going to restrict the behaviors that we can, the, the industries that we can uh, pursue within those boundaries. We'd prefer it not to be a site and just live our lives there. Uh, so it's a really delicate balance about what is the most beneficial. And it really depends on site to site basis. Do you have any favorites, any underdogs out there of UNESCO World Heritage Sites <laughs> yeah. that you think are really cool that no that people don't pay attention well, to? Well, you know, I, I hate to I hate to promote uh, these little these little places that are untouched. You know, I don't want all these hordes of tourists to come. But actually, I spent my summers in a small uh, town in central Italy called Urbino, which was where. Um, which is where Raffaello was born, for example. And that's, you know, I'm, I'm partial to that one. And I'm also partial to Angkor. But um, I'm really hoping, you know, maybe in the next uh, year or two that perhaps Pagan in, in, in Burma and in Myanmar would become a World Heritage Site. Right now, you know, Myanmar is opening up and they don't have any uh, sites, but uh, the director general of UNESCO has pledged to kind of help them uh, compile these files. And, you know, we're up to 962 and they tend to average about 30 sites a year. Uh, being designated. So we're going to see the number of thousand site either this year or next year. Uh, and I'm sure it's going to be something big. And so we're, I'm, I'm wondering what that, you know, what that one will be.
That's anthropologist and author Michael DeGiovene talking UNESCO World Heritage Sites on Worldview. Closest sites to us are the Cahokia Mounts just northwest of St. Louis and the Great Smoky Mountains, maybe about a nine, nine and a half hour drive, depending on how you drive. Do you have a favorite World Heritage Site? Do you have a story to share about a trip to a World Heritage Site? Head to Worldview's Facebook page. Start a conversation. That's what this is all about. And that'll do it for this week's The Best of BEZ Talk. The Best of BEZ Talk is a production of WBEZ, Chicago Public Media. Talk programming on WBEZ is produced by Carrie Shepard, Eileen Heiken and Weiss, Katie O'Brien, Becky Flamas, Alexandra Solomon, Joe Dassault, Steve Varnum, and me. Jason Mark, the executive producer of Talk Programming, is Justin Kaufman. Subscribe to this and all of our podcasts in iTunes. And when you go to iTunes, take one second, rate us, review us. It helps you, it helps us. Thanks for that. Of course, you can listen to everything from all of our talk programs on SoundCloud. Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect our community, our nation, and our world. For more info, go to chicagopublicmedia.org. Till next time, I'm Jason Mark. Thanks for listening. 